Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning. It's Friday morning. I wanted to do this last night, but I fell asleep. The um, We're looking at Parsha Shmos. I just want to uh, start by uh, thanking Levi Block for Lago sending in contribution and dedicating today. He asked me to dedicate today's talk to the yard site coming up next week of two of his relatives. Uh, one is Ephraim Ben Shalom Yeshua Levi Levin. That's coming up very soon. And the other one is Chan uh, Rivka Bas Ephraim Alevi Block Levin. So again, it's Ephraim Ben Shalom Yeshua Levi Levin and Chan Rivka Bas Ephraim Alevi Block Levin. That's uh, their family, the Blocks and Levins. They used to live next door to my shop, and now they moved, and Levy now lives out in the, where is it, in the Five Towns area or something like that, in Long Island. Uh, appreciate all the contributions. I'm very happy when people ask to dedicate a Garteau or something in someone's memory. It's a very uh, nice thing. Uh, two nice families, I happen to know them. I uh, also want to thank, uh, I got two or three emails the last couple of days from different people different shows in different places about scholar residents happened to mention it the other day and uh and in contact with them we're gonna we're gonna see uh because that's one of the things that i do you're going around the country for speaking in uh, sars and scholars and residents so uh, these are the things i need to do especially if it's going to be after march that's the best time for me because i have this mozi shabbos lecture series that i do every winter and uh I can find time even there if necessary, but if once March is over, then I have a clear sailing for a while. Anyway, we're looking at, um, but again, I want to thank everybody that's contributing, and uh, I hope they'll continue. This helps us do what we need to do over here. Um, it's just nice that their people are there. I also want to acknowledge some people are sending me back responses to things I said, especially with the Dikduk and the Ivrit. Some are better, some are worse. But uh, at least it's got people's uh, thinking. And we have that in this week's parasha, in general in the Shmos, I would say when you come to Shmos, you come to the happy hunting ground of competing Agatatas. Because you have to, many people don't understand. You see a metaphor in Agatata, that's one way of understanding the story. But then you have to, like in the Yeshiva, you have to fear ice. Then you have to explain the whole story according to that particular Mahalach in the Agatata. But then there could be a different Agatata, and then you have to construct an entire... I'm serious about this. You have to construct an entire narrative that will conform <clears throat> to that particular God. And you don't necessarily agree with each other. And you and I weren't there. So all we can do, as uh, shall we say, B'nai Torah, is to know all the different uh, shittas out there, particularly of the um, of the Chazal, and to some extent of the Rishonim, if you know that. Uh, but they, they're not identical. Now, someone can strive to make seemingly different approaches combined into one. That's usually some several likes to do that. But really, they represent different schools of thought. That, at least that's the that's what it seems to me. That's what it seems the most. I'll tell you where I'm going with all this. Here we are in Shemos. Everybody knows the story of Shemos. Or do we? 
There are things we learn, like in school, like when you're a kid, you learn Rashi said this, this one's anything to become hardwired into your uh, understanding of the narrative. But it's not so pushed. Now, along the lines of uh, hard Hebrew phrases, when you get to this week's Parsha, we all say that, you know, when Yosef died, beginning of Parsha, so Pasha Pshat is the Jews uh, uh, multiplied, and uh, and they spread out of Goshen. At least that seems to be the way it is. When Yosef was around, he said, stay in Lakewood, stay in the park, don't go anywhere else. Yosef figured he took, knew his relatives, and if they're Jews, there'll be a turnoff, and what do you need that for? And so stay in Goshen, but then they didn't. All right? When Yosef was uh, gone, they didn't. The matter says they stopped circumcised. That's a function effect. They spread out among the Goyim. Uh, and it says the language, I'm sure I mentioned it in the past, which again is problematic from the Ivrit point of view. It violates the Hebrew language because So how do you translate that in Hebrew? You can't. Osam is, as you know, a direct object. So what is It's what we call nifal. Right? So, uh, as a passive. So, Vatimo Lehars, the land was filled, Osam, them. No, it has to be Mayhem, get it? Vatimo Lehars, Mayhem, preposition. The land was filled from them. That is to say, Egypt got full of Jews, which is a Pashup Shot way of learning, and I think that's how they read it. Uh, I don't have the Uncleus in front of me, but I bet you that's how he says it. A lot of time, the Uncleus elides these sorts of things. Somebody wrote to me the other day, well, Uncleus said this and that. The Uncle had a translation exactly. Uncle, on the contrary, is always trying to smooth out the rough edges of grammatical problems. Because Uncle is not writing, quote-unquote, for a scholarly audience. He's writing for Hamunam. He wants the public to understand the thing in a plain, in a plain way. That's the godless of Uncle. But he does it with a, a firm spin. But, what, but you know Hebrew. Vatimolei arts mehem. Alternatively, if we want to be Bible critics, you can say, Vatimolei arts osam. You could do like that also. If you put a shvah under the tuff instead of an e, the land filled them, but not vatim arts osam. How do you do? It? How do you explain that? And it's a wonderfully ambiguous phrase, and it kind of—I mean, we we kind of smell what's going on, and you can read it two ways: that the country of Egypt got filled with Jews, and so next thing you know, they bought all the land out outside of Lakewood, you know that sort of thing, uh, and therefore provoked the anti-Semitism that led to the slavery, or. They got assimilated. That the land filled them up. Notice they got super Egyptianized. The, the land filled up. Osam. And, and, and they're the ones that got filled up with Egyptianism. So they became Egyptian. Why am I uh, pounding on this? I'll tell you why. Uh, we all know that over the course of time, uh, the Jews really got in Egypt. I'll use a code word. One, one line says the whole thing. Mem teshari tum. If I use that as an expression, everybody knows. Now, which is another way of saying the Jews got really assimilated in Egypt. Ah, you have contradictory things where it says, Loshinu Lashonum, Loshinu Ashmam. You know, we have such chazals. Uh, uh, but like I told you before, different agatatas are sometimes hard to combine with each other. Uh, the one that's, to my mind, to my mind, when it says they didn't change their name, they didn't change, they kept the Jewish identity, that's one way of understanding the story. There are others that say, no, they did change the name, they did change the story, and one said they didn't tell Lashon Aron each other, but the whole story of Moshe Rabbeinu is when they tell Lashon Aron them, you know. And uh, uh, they certainly changed their clothes. It's, it's uh, you know, contradictory ways of understanding it. 
similarly, but we all get the general idea, that the Kali Yisrael was really holding in, like, Simente Sharitum, and those, they were really idol worshippers over the course of the time. The Rambam is very eloquent on this in his construction of the events at the beginning of Hilchus. I'm sure many know what I'm talking about, where he starts with Avraham Avinu starting monotheism, but then when the Abrahamic group ends up in Egypt, all the Nefesh uh, Asher uh, Asa becomes Goyim again, and even the whole, this is what he says, I'm doing by heart, the whole Kla Yisrael became Goyim again, meaning they all dropped Judaism, and they all became assimilated, except for Shevet Levi, he says, you understand? Uh, so that's his construction, but there's a, there's, there's a lot of different ways of putting it together. So, I'll tell you where I'm going with this. What happened to the Jews in the end? Well, they got out. Well, it's not so posh that they got out. Uh, we have long traditions, that, but they're complicated, which say not all the Jews got out. Some got out. Uh, you and I are familiar, I'm sure, with the idea that 20% got out and 80% remained behind. That's based on the idea of Hamushim And one of the classic interpretations in the Medish Rabbah, I believe, is a Hamishit, only one-fifth left Egypt. So what happened to the other four-fifths? That's 80%. So again, the way we put it together is with the Agatha, which says that they died in the plague of darkness. Right? We've all heard that. And uh, and there is a, you know, Chazal like that, Rashi quotes it, they died in the plague of darkness. It's a Chil Hashem uh, That way the Jews could bury the dead and the Egyptians wouldn't see it and have the satisfaction. Okay, so... And you can build a whole thing around it. I remember uh, Rish Lakish's, somebody says in Bishalach, means that God cannot give him comfort for the 80% that perished. Okay, fine. But that's one way of understanding it. The other way of under- understanding it is not that. The other way is saying that everybody left. And Chamushim means they, with, with, with military weapons, with armed. Chamushim, Jews alone with weapons. Remember, you've been in Israel to give out the ammunition hill. Chomish can also mean uh, weapons. Uh, so this ambiguous. What exactly happened? Now, I'll tell you why this occurred to me uh, yesterday. I have, uh, next week, uh, I got my father's yard site, mostly Shabbat Saturday and Sunday. And so, whenever I do that, I always try to finish something like I see him. I was in Yavamas, but it's going to take too long to finish. And so... Last month I said I'll switch to something shorter so I'll be able to finish and make a see him for next week. So I did Yushami Moid Cotton. I've done it before. And uh, I finished the other day. And one of the. So I was thinking, what will I say for Dwarator? You know, like Hadron. And one of the things that came was uh, the very interesting notion that they asked, you know, where do you get sh- sitting Shiva from and all that by Yamala. Mali and all that, or Vayas Evil from last week's Parsha, that Joseph sat Shiva for his father. But then, Yushalmi is the source that says, No, Ainla made him become Mount Torah. You're not supposed to learn halacha from something that happened prior to Mount Torah. Okay, that's interesting, a little historical there. And so I started just a little bit looking around on sources of that. And there are, there's a literature on that, there is. So one of the places, there are a few places in Shas that discuss this directly or indirectly. And one of the interesting places in Shas is in Sanhedrin, on a 59, the Nun And there has a general kind of a statement that what do you do with um, things that are mentioned like embraces and not 
later, you know, it was before Mantor, like you said before. And the formulation come up in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, which I have in front of me, is Amra Rabbi Yosef Mechanina, Kol Mitzvah Shenemra Levnei Noch, Venishas Vesinai, Lezev Sen Nemra. Levnei Noch, Velo Nishas Vesinai, Lezev Nemra, Velo Levnei Noch. Which means any mitzvah that was said prior to Mount Torah, Levnei Noach, because prior to Mount Torah, the Jewish people and everybody else were Bnei Noach. Let's just go with that as as the Lamdanim out there know the Prussian Drachim is all <laughs> into that. The, Famous say for precious drachim, but nevertheless, Pashim Shab, everybody was not Jewish because the Jew, Judaism starts formally with Mount Torah. So, call Mitzvah Shanem of Nain Noach, any Mitzvah that's mentioned before Mount Torah in time, Benain Noach, Venishness Vesina, if it's mentioned again at Harsina, meaning in the in the Torah, from Harsina on, Lezev Zenemra, it was meant to apply to Jews as well as the non Jews. I repeat, the Jews and non Jews. And uh, the Gemara said, famous symbols, uh, you know, Vodazara or whatever, you know. Where does it say uh, before Mountain Torah you can't worship idols? Nevertheless, you see later on that the Canaanites and the others are are uh, going to be wiped out because they uh, worshipped idols or they did uh, Gilarias. So you see that it was, a you know, uh, before and after because the Torah certainly mentions the Isurim of Gilarias and of Azar, obviously. So it applies to both. But Levnei Noach, Lo Sinai, then anything that was said to the Bnei Noach, and was not repeated Sinai, Lisra and then below Bnei Noach, said it's only applying to Jews, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive. If it's only said to Bnei Noach, why should it apply to Jews? Well, the Gemara goes on to say, the only example is Gedanosha. Hey, Lord, El Gedanosha, Ali Rebihuda. So, uh, what does that mean? So, he was alluding to a very interesting and famous Mishnah in Acholen, where uh, you have like a history Mishnah. And there's an old chapter in Chulam about Gid and Nasha. You know I'm talking about the sciatic nerve. And there's a debate between Rabbi Huda and the Chachamim whether or not Gid and Nasha applies to trafe animals. The Mishnah says, Does Gid and Nasha would apply to a you know, trafe animal? Assuming you have Yisr Chalas and all that stuff. And Am Rabbi Yehuda in the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda says, that, wait a minute, um, it should apply to all animals because the history of the Gid is from when Jacob wrestles with the angel. That's long before the Torah was given. And at that time, there was no Kashras. And therefore, it says, from any animal that you, do you eat. Because in the time of Yaakov and his children, if you go by Pashib shot, they ate the tray food, you know, so to speak. In other words, it wasn't formally usher. So, if it says, Lo yochu Gidanasha, from Yaakov and those generations on, anybody who was descended of Yaakov was not allowed to eat the Gidanasha of any animal. You see, it applies even to tray animals. So, uh, because you and I know, it, that, that Pasuk goes back to Parshish Vayetze, is it? Vayishlach, Vayishlach, I guess. Back in time of Yaakov, you know, when he wrestled with the angel. And the Amrulo, so the Chacham disagreed and said in the Mishnah, that in point of fact, historically, you're wrong. The Pasuk that says, was not pronounced until Harsinai. Right? Rashi says, So, there was no Isser. It's just interesting what I'm saying. You have a a, a historic a machlokus over the historical reality, the halachic historical reality. 
according to the Chacham, it's a mission, it's a well-known mission. According to the Chachamim, in the time of Yaakov, you could eat to get anasha. In the time of Yaakov's children, you could eat to get anasha. In the time of Yosef and others, you could eat to get anasha. When the Torah was given our Sinai, then from then on, you can't eat to get anasha. Get anasha. And therefore, from then on, there was kashras and only applies to kosher animals. Right? El Makoma, Rashi says, that it was written as a little bit of historical revision in Lachashanem Besinai, Kosa Besider Moshe Satorah, Kosa Mikra Zalamaisa. So Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was given this uh, uh, commandment by God, don't need to get a Nasha, Moshe, I guess under divine uh, you know, guidance, inserted this in the Genesis narrative. So it's Akin Lo Yochum Get a Nasha has to be understood as kind of some, something of, a, of an interpolation, sort of. Sort of. I mean, Moshe is writing gracious also, but, you know, sort of. And uh, therefore, when it says, Al-Kain get Anasha, that's like an editor's remark that Moshe is putting this in uh, to say uh, that this Isser that we just got a minute ago here at Sinai dates back to Yaakov Avinu, uh, meaning that's the, that's the reason for it. That's the reason for it. But the halos of it is only now. Okay, fine. So it's one of those, like I said, it's interesting historical debate. So, uh, what is it saying? It's saying, again, that anything that... Um, this has to do with whether or not the issue that I was interested in for my uh, projected um, Hadron next week, um, just, the, you know, the beginning of it. And here you have something historical, as I say before. You know, Lema- is there arguing whether Lameda and Mikodim Mountain Torah or not? You know, do, you did, it's obviously an important Gemara within that discussion. Do you learn a halacha now from something that happened prior to Mountain Torah? It's an interesting kind of business, right? But, so I'm just looking around. So since it's in, in um, Sanhedrin, and I was in my house, so I was actually in my uh, new room where a lot of books are, so I just pulled out a, a Margolosium, you know, because it's Sanhedrin. And the Margolosium is, you know, like a collection from a of a belt of sources. Uh, I used to rely on it at the Bible when I did the art scroll. I did Perkhelech. So, uh, you know, one place you want to go that really has a lot of, uh, collects a lot of material is Margolis Yom. Okay, fine, let it be. And I just happened to open to that place to see what he says. <laughs> Excuse me. And he quotes something called Chidush Rabbeinu Yonah on Sanhedrin, which is a well-known reason. This is not Rabbeinu, for those of you who don't know, this is not Rabbeinu Yonah, the famous one, Rabbi Yonah Garona. It's another guy, somebody, could very well be one of the junior balitosis or one of those types. We don't know. We do not know who it is, but somebody's like a rishon. A rishon, I repeat. Okay, so he's saying like this: that anything that was said only after Matan Torah, right? Anything. What, what was the language of the Gemara over there? It says that anything that was called uh, it was mentioned twice. Then it's, it applies to to Bnei Noach as well as to, to the Jewish people, but if it was only mentioned once. And applies to the Jews, right? If it was uh, mentioned, in other words, Levnei Noach v'lo Nishas b'Sinai, like the story of the Gidon Nasha, that it's written in the Chumash historically, uh, as happening in the time of Brachus, the Bnei Noach and not the Nishas Sinai, the Israel never Then it doesn't apply to the, then it does not apply to the Bnei Noach. I hope that was clear what I just said. But that's just a quote from the Gemara over there. Now, I'm trying to make this not complicated, because it really isn't complicated, it's just you have to know the, the background here for a second. So, listen to this. I just pulled out 
this uh, Margo's yum and I <laughs> dropped something here. Uh, I just pulled this Margo's yum and uh, happened to notice this pose. And he quotes over here from this Rishon and he says, How can you call the history of Ginnah which becomes the historical template over here, something for B'nai Noach? Never applied to the B'nai Noach. You know that. It says, And the Chumash it said, and now we're going according to Rabbi Huda, who is not going like the Rabban. Rabbi Huda says that it was indeed said to the B'nai Yaakov. When it says, It means, historically speaking, from the time of Bracious, this uh, mitzvah applied. But how are you going to say it applies to the B'nai Noach? Uh, it never applied to the B'nai Noach, only to the sons of Yaakov, because Yaakov wrestled with the angel. That's the question of this uh, B'nai Yonah. All right, So even if it would have been repeated twice, which it wasn't, then uh, you still can be Mechayed to B'nai Noach. So what does it mean that anything that was said twice, before Montor and after Montor, applies to B'nai Noach uh, as well as to the Jewish people? Who would it apply to? It never applied to Goyim. And then he says something fascinating, which had to do with Parsha Shemot. That's the reason I'm sharing with you. V'yei the Vadai ain't b'nei noach b'chlal. Agreed that there never was a havamina that the prohibition of getting noach applied to Gentiles mamish. Umihu never lived in Yisrael But maybe if it would be repeated, then it would apply to two different types of Jews, A and B. Who would be the different types of Jews? Jews who got the Torah and Jews who did not get the Torah. What are you talking about? I thought all the Jews left Egypt and got the Torah, and everybody else perished in the plague of darkness. No. No. It says it could apply. There were Jews, there were a lot of Jews who remained behind in Egypt, they didn't leave, and they lived there and had children, and they were not in Harsinai, they weren't interested in getting the Torah, and Therefore, this Rishon is asking in a halachic alumdish way, in Nemer Basinai, had Gidanosha been something that was repeated twice, which it isn't, but had it been something that was repeated twice, before Harsinai and after Harsinai, then Lazel's and Nemra, then would apply to the Bnei Noach, meaning the Jews who had a dinner Bnei Noach, as well as the Jews who no longer had a dinner Bnei Noach. The Osam Banim Shaholidu Mishamadim Mitzumal Gidanosha. And therefore, those kids, from the alumnship perspective, of these Jews, um, had it been repeated twice, they would be subject to the Gedanosha because they're B'nai Yisrael. Al-Kin Yoch B'nai Yisrael Gedanosha. B'nai Yisrael means the, the physical descendants of Jacob. So what do you just, you understand what, you, you understand what I just read? It means like this. Forget that Rashi and the Medrash about everybody perishing in Egypt. Plenty of Jews stay behind. Batim Olehar or some. They got so into Egypt that when the time came for the ten plagues and the Yitzhiz Mitzrayim and the Seder and the Carbon Pesach and the Gantz story, some Jews did it, other Jews did not. Other Jews stayed behind, assimilating Egyptian society, meaning they stayed there, they got married, their children stayed behind them, and you had a whole population in Egypt, we don't know how big, we had a whole population in Egypt, and uh, they, they are as we would say today, genealogically Jewish, but they're not, uh, you know, uh, halachically Jewish. What do I mean by halachically Jewish? From the halachic point of view, 
a Jew is somebody that was a Harsinai or descended from somebody's Harsinai and was a Makabal of Torah and said, Nasim Nishman, the whole business. You understand? So they can be Machayev themselves and their children after them. But those Jews, meaning those who are physical descendants of Jacob, uh, of Yaakovino, again, physical descendants of Yaakovino, uh, did not leave Egypt, didn't go to Marmon Harsinai, was not Makabal of Torah, and they, they're not. They're not B'nai Yisrael in the halachic sense. They're uh, B'nai Noach. And so the argument was that it had to get Anosha been repeated twice. Those people who be Jewish B'nai Noach, can you hear what I, you hear what I just said? Jewish B'nai Noach, they would be still subject to the uh, Israel of Anosha. That's where this Rishon is going. It's a, again, it's Yonah over there. So what the heck is he talking about over here? I thought all the Jews left Egypt, right? And, and, and like I say, and those that didn't perished. Now, uh, so it got me thinking. You know, it got me thinking. It's a lot yesterday. Where do you see anything about that? And then I said, you know, uh, there is a basis for this. And I'll t- and again, here's a case where you can just like slip in with the uncle's way and just elide it and reread it like what Timolis says something and play around with that. Or read the words for what they say. And where I'm going with this is in Bashalach when I think everybody knows it says... That Hashem is talking to Moshe and says, go make a left turn, a right turn when you're leaving Egypt. You know the story, until they end up at the Red Sea. And make it look like you're all uh, messed up in your directions. And Paro said, or possibly future tense, Paro said to the Bnei Yisrael, the Jews in the desert are trapped and uh, they're by the desert and I'll go and chase them and, and reconquer them. Hold your horses. For Omar Paro of Bnei Yisrael, Pharaoh said to Bnei Yisrael, the Bnei Yisrael left. What do you mean he said to Bnei Yisrael in the Vukimim Bars? So the Uncleus and Rashi say, V'yomar Paro al Bnei Yisrael. That Pharaoh said, concerning the Jews, they are lost in the desert. I got no problem with that, but that's not what it says. You understand? No, it says, live Bnei Yisrael. So you could read it as al Bnei Yisrael. Like I said before, that, that is a Malach. But you can also read it, live in Israel. What does that sound like? There are Jews who didn't leave, and Pharaoh is talking to them, and he's saying, uh, your, your fellow Jews, uh, genealogically, are now all screwed up and lost in the desert. I'm going to go recapture them. So that means there were Jews behind who didn't leave. Beyond the problem Israel. There is a Targum, uh, Yonasan, I guess? I'm talking about pseudo Jonathan, you know, the, on the side of Mikras Gadol is what they call Tafiyah Tagum Yishalmi, Tagum Yonasan. And he says, Pharaoh was talking to Dothan and Aviram. Maybe you've seen that before, maybe you haven't. In which case, that would be weird because I thought Dothan and Aviram later on with the Korach and all the rest of it, you know. Um, and there is, and so I, I actually looked up in the um, Menachem Kasher, I'm probably Israel. I wanted to see if there's any Chazal that says that he spoke to the Bnei Israel, And the most he comes up with is this Yemenite Medrash, you know, these obscure things where you don't know if they're real or not, where he has a whole Misa where Dasan and Viram stayed behind, but then when they saw the miracle of the Yamsuf, then they joined. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know where that comes from. But um, you end up with these kind of agotic strands. And what you're left with is a very interesting... Uh, and, and by the way, the Margolis Yam goes on to develop this idea... That that's what the Chiddush of Yonah is talking about, you know, and with the Gedanasha. He says, it wasn't only those environments, other people also. In which case, you end up with a situation like we have in the world today, 
There's a ton of people who are Goyim in Spain and Portugal and places like that that you and I know really are Jewish if you want to go by strict DNA. Uh, I think I told you once, the Lubavitch Rebbe, I remember this years ago, was interviewing the Yiddish paper. I, I remember reading this in the Yiddish paper decades ago. And the guy asked the Lubavitch Rebbe, how many Jews are in Soviet Russia? And the usual answer was two million, maybe three, maybe three. He said 17 million. Shabbat said 17 million. What the heck? Where you get that from? And uh, his point was, you know, genealogically and all, there's a lot of people who think they're going, but, uh, you know, but they're really Jewish. And I assume Lubavitch knew to what's going on secretly in Russia. Uh, if he didn't, uh, who did? So uh, you have this phenomenon of B'nai Noach who are living in Egypt. The power of Egypt was so attractive, you understand? It got into them. They didn't want to leave. And it reminds you of the fact that if the Mashiach came tomorrow, all joking aside, a lot of American Jews wouldn't want to leave, you know? I myself remember I said to Saladina Klaas, I was in Gibraltar X number of years ago, and, uh, did I mention this last week? I can't remember. He said, I was in Gibraltar, and the guy who was in charge of the community was a Shammar Shabbos guy. And, uh, you know, modern Orthodox. And the bottom line was, he's a Gibraltar patriot. And if the Messiah comes tomorrow, I would wish Israel well, and I would visit him, but I'm not leaving Gibraltar, because this is Eden, this is Ghanaian. He says, this is Eden, this is Ghanaian. Not Israel. I mean, but what does that mean? Vatimole, Gibraltar, Osam, you know, some people get so into the land, the gullets that they're in, that they wouldn't leave even if they had the opportunity. And so you end up with a situation, and the ancient Egyptians, according to this, concluded, including their population, an element, which is, uh, you know, DNA-wise, is Jewish, uh, which is uh, like crazy. Now, uh, I think it was their Rizal, did I mention last week, you know, he's into Egypt a lot, because they lived in Egypt, right? That's the story of the Rizal. Born in Jerusalem, they say his father died when he was extremely young, and his mother moved to Egypt to live with her brother, who was a rich guy who raised a family. And Ari, who's the biggest Kabbalist, you know, got all this Kabbalah stuff in Egypt, secluded on the Nile River. Not in Israel. That's what you'd think. Only the end of his life, the last two years or so, two and a half years, he moved this fast. The rest of the time, up till he was like 36 or whatever, he was in Egypt, which means, as he would put it, you have all these nitsotsas of Kedusha that the uh, Jewish people were supposed to suck out of Egypt. So I'm sure he's going to interpret this to say the Jews didn't leave Egypt because, uh, you know, even at the time Moshe Rabbeinu didn't take out all the Natotas or something like that. Uh, where do you get this idea of the Egypt is full of Natotas of Kedusha, that the Jews uh, go into Gauls to kind of attract to them or something like that? Uh, I know it's a weird concept, but it's very famous. You've heard it. I mean, I'm not the first one to come up with that. I mean, if you want to push it, my Monadian explanation, what it means is the Jews attracted them, uh, uh, righteous converts, Gersetics, like the like the mother of Moshe Ben, you know, Basi Basparo, Basi Basparo, people like that. But in a broader sense, what do you mean these Nitsotas of uh, Kedusha? The way I understand it is, again, this is based on a reading. See, we have interesting readings, David. Timoli or some, Viyamar Paro living in Israel. I just want to conclude with this thought because then I've got to go pick up somebody. Uh, one of the parts of the story of the seasons around that we're all familiar with is that they're going to go and take money. Uh, you know, uh, you know that passage. That they borrowed a clay kesef and clay zav and, and clothing. And they, and they spoiled, they, they, uh, despoiled, they, they stripped Egypt. Uh, why do I have to know that? I mean, that's a weird part of the story. 
It's actually Chil Hashem, isn't it? Wouldn't it be more noble if we say they left Egypt, they didn't take a penny, to act with Egypt, drop dead. We're leaving. Dermot Shalom will take care of us. You know, we'll go in the desert with the man and all the rest of it. Totally Torah's pichami alfid zavakezav. You know that kind of approach. Uh, reminds you like when Israel made the treaty with Germany in 1952. So Ben Gurion said we need the money, which was true. But Malcolm Begin said, "Yes, be better. Don't take a penny from the lousy Germans." Comes in, but you know, like that. Why do we have to be told in the chumash? You know, they don't tell you many details of the story in Egypt. They tell you some. So every pasuk the Torah includes obviously of, of, of fundamental importance. Uh, if it's included in the story, why do they have to tell us that they borrowed money? First of all, like I say, Sechelashem, they borrowed money and never brought it back. Why don't they just tell everybody we're leaving, you owe us money for the slavery, like the African Americans want to do that and want to pay for the slavery, and then uh, reparations. And and that's what they took from Egypt, and that's their right. There's a story like that, I know, you know, in the Gemara with Gvib and Psisa, where he said, This is the money we took from the, from being slavery in Egypt. But in the puzzle, said they borrowed it. And it uh, sounds like they cheated. Why? 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 And it's very Jewish, you know, very anti-Semitic. Uh, they took all the Jews left Egypt. They took all the money with them, the gold and the silver and the clothes. Why have to? Do, why have to say that? Now there are ways, of course, of explaining this in the Pashtun level. Obviously, there certainly are. But I think that's my understanding. That's where people like the Rizal says, "Oh, you dumbbell! You think they took clay kesef and clay zahav? No, they took the sources of kedusha. That's what it means. By Nazim Mitzrayim, they stripped Mitzrayim of the kedusha they had over there." And they took it with them because that's the, the purpose of the Kalah to go around and pick up the Gedush and restore it back to the tree, as they say, and bring back the Tikkun Olam and restore the Adam and Eve paradise for the Messianic era. Uh, so I conclude, because I have to now, with uh, just the insight that you kind of have to like take a pen and piece, piece of paper, and if you're following the narrative that says that they all perished in Egypt, that's one Mahalak, and you have to explain the rest of the Shmos According to that, if you follow the narrative that I quoted you today, which uh, which I didn't make up, that's in the Rabbeinu, uh, where the Jews did not leave Egypt, uh, it's possible that eighty percent remained behind and and remained behind. Pashim shot assimilated. In other words, eighty percent of Jewish people said we want to stay in Egypt, and that's what happened. And that's Amar Paral of Israel. Pharaoh said to the Israel, who stayed in Egypt, "You guys were smart because the, your compatriots now are stuck in the desert, going to be wiped out." If that's true, then wow. That's really Vatimoli or Susam. That once they came into contact with the powerful Egyptian culture at that time, they were hooked and fatal attraction. You understand? Fatal attraction. They could not detach themselves from it. Even with ten plagues, and even with the busting of Egypt, and even Bechol Elohim Israel Meshvatim, but eighty percent said, No, 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 Egypt is, is the way to go. So uh, I just wanted to share that with you. And again, thank all those who are uh, continuing to uh, help out over here. It's appreciated. And with that, I bid you good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com